Please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Psalms, and I would direct your attention to Psalm 97, verse 8. Psalm 97, verse 8. Zion heard and was glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoiced because of thy judgments, O Lord. Zion heard and was glad. The daughters of Judah rejoiced because of thy judgments, O Lord. The reason for rejoicing over blessings seems evident and obvious to us. Blessings are happy. They bring pleasure and so on. But the reasons for rejoicing over judgments seems less obvious almost counterintuitive. Judgments are sad. Judgments are painful, and so on. How is it that we rejoice over them? And yet, this is a regular theme that is woven throughout the book of Psalms, one that continues to surface over and over in various places. You'll note, um, as we sang at the beginning of the service, Psalm Uh, 48 verse 11 is very close to the one that we have here for our text. So it's another example. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of thy judgments. But you can go straight through the Psalms and find many references. Some other, another would include Psalm 58 and verse 10. The righteous shall rejoice when he seeth the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. So this is the theme that is recurring throughout the book of Psalms, rejoicing in God's judgments, rejoicing in his judgments. It would be helpful for us if we understood exactly what that entailed, so that as we're, we're singing those portions of, of the Psalter, we have uh, in our minds uh, precisely what it is that we are saying, what it is that we are not only thinking, but feeling in terms of of those rejoicings. This is something not unique to the Psalms, of course. You can go all the way back to the early days in Exodus 15, there when uh, God delivers his people from out, out from under the Egyptian bondage. They're brought over the Red Sea, and in that very act of, of redemption, of salvation, uh, judgment falls upon Pharaoh and his army, upon the house of, of Pharaoh, and so not only through a series of plagues, but then at the sea itself. And the response of God's people was jubilation, it was joy. So on the other side of the sea, you find the song of Moses in Exodus 15, they're rejoicing in verse 20, and Miriam the prophet, prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a timbrel in her hand. All the women went out after uh, her with timbrels and with dances. So here's the kind of the picture of the daughters of Zion, to use the language of our text. And Miriam answered them, Sing ye to the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. So there's rejoicing over the judgments of God. But we can also point our attention, uh, direct our attention forward as well. Go to the book of Revelation. And there in chapter 18 and then going into chapter 19, you see the Lord bringing down his judgment upon Babylon, upon spiritual Babylon, the great whore, right? So here is the Lord punishing uh, the, the Antichrist. And, and the response in chapter 19, verse 1 is, Alleluia. 
salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the, the, the text goes on with the same sort of theme. Praise to the Lord for the judgments that he is he is executing. So we come back now to the middle of our Bibles, back to the Psalter, the book of Psalms. And here in Psalm 97, uh, verse 8, we see this, the same theme, right? So the Lord, the Psalm opens in terms of the context. The Lord is the one Jehovah who's reigning. And as the, the reigning king, he's going forth to judgment. Verse 2, righteousness and judgment are the habitation of his throne. Verse 3, a fire goeth before him. And burneth up his enemies round about. And then you have verse 7. Confounded be all they that serve graven images, that boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all ye gods. So the context is showing the authority, the power of God in coming forth uh, to judgment. So you come to verse 8. Zion, of course, is the church. The daughters of the daughters of Judah are the members of the church. And we're so we're being told that the church heard. They heard of the judgments of God. And the effect of their hearing was gladness. They were glad. They rejoiced because of the judgments of, of the Lord. So the judgments of God are a cause for the rejoicing of his people. Now we... You stop and pause for just a second. We know that rejoicing is part of the Christian life. We're used to that. Rejoicing and joy is part of the Christian life. And we know that judgment, divine judgment, is necessary because of the presence of sin in this, in this fallen world. But putting these two things together can be somewhat perplexing. Rejoicing in judgment, rejoicing because of judgment, and so on. So the question is, why? That's the question. The question is, why rejoice in judgment? And so there are three things that we want to consider together and answer to that question. Why rejoice in judgment? And in doing so, hopefully the Lord will thereby furnish us with uh, a fuller, clearer acquaintance with, with what this entails, so that as we're singing the Psalms, as we're meditating upon these truths, as we are responding in providence, in time to judgment, we're better equipped to do so with, with understanding. So first of all, the first answer to the question, why, is because the church is redeemed through judgment. So first of all, because the church is redeemed through judgment. So in a sense here, we're, we're starting the answer to the question by going back to the fundamentals. We're going back to some basics, back to the, the building blocks, the starting place, if you will, the broadest context in which to think of the relationship of joy and judgment, right? The broadest context. And it's also the one that's the most immediately relevant to the believer as well. 
It's also the most immediate. Why? Because it's the most immediately relevant because it lies so near to the heart of the gospel. The idea that the church is redeemed through, through judgment. So think about what does that entail. The believer is redeemed from the penalty of sin and the condemnation of hell through the judgment that fell on Jesus Christ. We are redeemed through the judgment that fell upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is horror of horrors, of course. We, we come to Calvary and there's, it's, it's, it's in God's providence, a shroud and darkness. And there's, there's something that should be self-evident about why that would be, right? There's, there's something mysterious, of course, but there's something also very grave and heavy about the unfolding of the transactions that happen at Golgotha. Here we have the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, made flesh, the one who is full of grace and truth, without sin, the spotless Lamb of God, who has, who has walked in perfect, spotless, flawless, impeccable righteousness, and in conformity to God's law, he is executed by Pilate. He is hoisted up between heaven and earth. And there, hanging upon a cross, the sword of divine justice descends from heaven into his soul. And here we have truly the horror of all horrors, something more horrifying than hell itself. Because it is Christ who is undergoing the horrors of hell as a substitute standing in the place of his people. So there, the curse of the law is being dealt with. Christ is being made curse for his people. There, he is a substitute as sinner. There, the wages of sin, which is death, are being paid and transacted in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is judgment of the most catastrophic form. Christ standing in the place of all of his elect people from Adam to the end of time and bearing the full brunt, penalty and punishment for their sins. Judgment, judgment, judgment in the boldest and brightest and strongest of all terms. And yet there is the redemption of God's people. Right? As wrath is being satisfied, as you well know, Guilt is being dealt with, as you well know. His blood is being shed in order to cleanse sinners, as you well know. It's redemption that's being secured in this profound act of judgment. Well, knowing all of that helps us to realize how it is that the believer can rejoice. If we're redeemed from the penalty of sin, the condemnation of hell through the judgment of Christ, the believer is able to come as it were, to Calvary. And in, in, in the shroud of darkness and in all of the horror and the, the ugliness that is portrayed and the, the punishment of sin, the upholding of God's justice, we have mixed with that, of course, the love and grace and goodness and abounding mercy of God toward undeserving, indeed hell-deserving, sinners. The believer can rejoice over that. Rejoice. That the Lord has undertaken in the judgment of his penal 
substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ, the redemption of his people. And so that begins to crack the door open for us, right? This is familiar territory. This is common currency for us. We should be well acquainted with these truths. And so that begins to open the door. Okay, we're thinking in terms of rejoicing and judgment. Here's a first fundamental. The second is that we're delivered from the bondage and slavery and captivity of Satan through judgment, through God's judgment of our archenemy. The Lord came to destroy the works of the devil, to make an open show of him. To crush his head, to grind it to powder, to completely destroy all that he stands for and all that he is in his, in his rebellion. I mean, here we are, born into the world, born into slavery, born into bondage of the very worst kind possible, born into the captivity of the kingdom of darkness and of the devil himself. And there we would spend our days and our eternity if left to ourselves. And the Lord comes in judgment to destroy the devil. To bring to end his reign over his people. To deliver his people from under his boot, his dominion, his power. And to set them at liberty. Well, that's a cause for rejoicing very much akin to what the Israelites felt on the far side of the Red Sea. You know, our, we can't get away from the fact that the horse and the rider being cast into a sea is gruesome. I mean, here you, you, have, you have men, real people, with wives and children and grandchildren perhaps, and nephews and nieces and friends and property and family and jobs and all sorts of stuff. These are real people. This isn't make-believe. And the hammer of God is falling upon Pharaoh and his house, his nation, his armies. And the Lord is taking them and overwhelming them with a deluge that they can't escape, that they can't outswim, that they can't conquer. And he brings them down under the water with their horses, no fault of their own, and gives them no air so that they have to suck water into their lungs right? Die. Sink ultimately to the bottom. To be swept out of this world with no future, no more days, no more sunshine, no more anything. The whole of Egypt was set howling in great cries of mourning over the loss of the huge majority of their men and so on and so forth. That's judgment. And the Lord brought fire from heaven upon Sodom and Gomorrah it wasn't a plaything. It wasn't a fairy tale. It wasn't something that was palatable. The Lord is bringing fire down from heaven to scorch human skin, to burn human bodies. Right? This is gruesome. We can't lose the sight of that. That's what we mean. We're talking about judgment. And yet there's joy that the Lord couples with it. In this case, it should become vividly clear the Lord who comes to the devil, who is an angelic being, who's fallen, rebellious, and the archenemy of God and his people. And the Lord comes to grind him to powder, to destroy him. The devil is a murderer and a liar from the beginning, and all of his sons are just like him. 
and he has set about all his days to defame the great God of glory, to dishonor and bring into disrepute his cause, to damage and hurt and malign and persecute his people. This is what the devil has set himself about to do. And here the people of God are able to stand, as it were, on the far side of Calvary and rejoice that this great wicked enemy has been defeated by the Lord. We're freed, furthermore, from the oppression of the world through the judgment of the world. We are crucified to the world and the world is crucified to us. That's what the Bible tells us. The Lord has destroyed the world. Now, when we say world, we're not talking about planet Earth, that sphere that's suspended in space and, and so on. No, we're, we're talking about the world in terms of an entity that is now under sin and fallen and all of the influence and effects that that has and so on. The Lord has come to judge the world and all of its influences upon the people of God. It too has been exposed. The Bible tells us that the church is redeemed through judgment in terms of being rescued from the power of Antichrist through the defeat of it. So that's one of the reasons I mentioned it in the introduction. You go to Revelation 18 and 19. What happens? The Lord comes and he over, there's the overthrow of spiritual Babylon. This great whore who has done so much as, as an instrument in the hand of the beast, in the, in the hand of the dragon, and the, the, the great serpent, the devil himself, right? This is a great dis, uh, uh, judgment that the Lord brings. He destroys it, to use the language of Paul elsewhere in Thessalonians, with the breath of his mouth and with the brightness of his coming. And so the people of God are rescued from all of the, the powers of the anti-Christian system through its defeat and overthrow. This is a cause of rejoicing. No wonder in Revelation 19, the people of God are, are beside themselves and splitting the, web, the heavens wide open with thunderous shouts of joy. Furthermore, it unifies Christ's scattered and separated people through the judgment his judgment on his, his enemies, the enemies of, of his church. You think, for example, of the Babylonian exile. The Lord used Babylon to accomplish his purpose, even in chastening his people. And then the Lord punishes Babylon for their wickedness, delivers his people, and brings them back to their land. And so those who had been scattered and separated are now brought back and unified under his hand again. And we see this throughout the history, not only of Old and New Testaments, but the history of post-apostolic age as well, where the Lord brings judgments in order to bring about the unifying of his people. Why is it that we rejoice in judgment? Because the church is redeemed through judgment. The church is given all of these savory bits of salvation for their good. You know, nations, I'm thinking now just of normal, you know, nations. The nations of the world, the nations of history. Nations commemorate the defeat of their enemies. Nations commemorate the defeat of their enemies, right? Deliverance from oppression. Deliverance from those who perhaps had conquered them and so on. 
And so nations have dates that they keep and recognize and memorialize and celebrate because of the winning of great wars and all of the benefits that this brings, right? That winning of a war means the defeat and destruction of an enemy. Nations commemorate that. Is it any surprise then that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ should rejoice over God's judgments, over his enemies and the enemies of his people, especially when the church is redeemed through that, that judgment. This is a cause of rejoicing because of judgment. Judgment is the way of redemption. So that's the first answer to our question. And it's the most fundamental, the broadest, if you will, the most immediately relevant to us. But then secondly, we rejoice in judgment because the prevalency of sin is diminished through judgment. The prevalency of sin is diminished through judgment. The Lord, in his temporal judgments, the ones he brings in history and time and space and so on, temporal judgments sweep swaths of sin out of the world. Wicked men, wicked people, wicked institutions, wicked nations who are propagating and promoting and proliferating massive amounts of iniquity and transgression. The Lord of time comes with his hammer and the hammer falls in judgment, temporal judgments, in order to sweep large swaths of sin out of the world. That's a cause for rejoicing. It's a cause to be made glad in the Lord when we see sin removed from the world. Furthermore, the judgment of God deters and restrains the commission of sin in the world. It actually brings in various degrees and kinds the fear of God into the hearts of people. So as long as sin is left unpunished, people are emboldened and people become brazen and people are given a longer leash and they're unchecked. And so it grows and it grows and it multiplies. And the Lord allows it at times in order to, in order to multiply his wrath and judgment upon a people uh, that he is set against in anger because of their, their rebellion. But the fact is the Lord brings a hammer. And when he brings down his judgment, it has the impact of bringing great restraint. I mean, you, you think of this uh, at, a, at a more microscopic level compared to what I'm describing. In nations, when, when punishment is just, that is to say, in keeping with the word of God, and it is quick and it is proportionate, it has a, res it has a result of, of bringing restraint. You know, so if murders who are proven guilty of murder are speedily executed as a result, capital punishment, what happens? There are fewer murders. But when murder happens and there's a great delay in any punishment and then the punishment is something more mild and so on, people are, you know, emboldened. So the crime of murder, sin of murder multiplies as a consequence. There's less restraint, as it were. 
Well, that's easy. We can all see that, and uh, we can put those pieces together. You could take it even down into the home, you know, where children are left undisciplined, and there's, there's the, the use of the rod is not employed in a godly and loving way, and so on, right? There's wreaks all sorts of havoc within, within, within the home. So those are easy. Those are close at hand. Well, zoom out again to the big picture. God's temporal judgments, which he brings on men, people, nations, institutions, and so on, has a similar effect of restraining the commission of sin. Furthermore, it removes obstacles and barriers that hinder the progress of the gospel and the truth of God. So it removes, the judgment of God actually removes obstacles and barriers that hinder the progress of the gospel and, and the truth of, of God. When the Lord is sweeping his enemies out of the way, he is opening the way for the truth to go forward and to flourish, for the gospel to be given open doors at times, and for the light to shine where there has been darkness, for the for the good news to be propagated in the place of God's enemies, and those who have pontificated to the contrary of God's word. And so we rejoice because the prevalency of sin is diminished through judgment. At times it also destroys the persecutors of God's people. So the Lord uses persecution. He designs it. He ordains it. He orchestrates it. Days of persecution are, have been often fruitful days. Fruitful, spiritually fruitful days for the church and for the people of God. It's not to say that they're flawlessly fruitful, right? There's lots of apostasy and there's compromise and idolatry and many heartbreaks and, and sadnesses that take place. Though the Lord is purifying his house in the process. But he also makes it abundantly fruitful. However, it's also true the other direction, that the Lord at times destroys the persecutors of God's people in order to liberate them and to set them free from the restraints of propagating the gospel and growing the church and so on. This is why Paul says, you know, pray for kings that you'll be able to lead a quiet and peaceable life. There are advantages to the church when she's given breathing room to do all that the Lord has ordained for her to do and to carry out the work of evangelization and mission and so on and the planting of churches and, and uh, seeing the church, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ expand. That's wonderful. And so the Lord at times destroys persecutors in order to bring this to pass. And so the people of God can rejoice in judgment because the prevalency of sin is at times diminished. And of course, this is seen most clearly at the end. And it's helpful for us, I think, generally, we can, we can let our minds go out to see where this leads. This is true even in a kind of a day-to-day -day basis. You hear someone give an argument. One of the things that we do or should do is think, where, where does that argument go? Where does that argument lead us, right? Where... If we, if we sustain that argument and follow it out, where, where exactly does it end up? That's an appropriate thing to do, right? You, that's how you end up in what we call a reductio ad absurdum. You can show that 
this argument actually can be reduced to absurdity if it's, if it's consistently maintained. So, so if that's true in just the normal way in which we operate and think, it's true in terms of the big questions and issues and doctrines and so on as well. So fast forward to the last judgment. So we're speaking about rejoicing in judgment. Let's think about the last judgment, the greatest of all judgment, the judgment that comes at the end of history. What takes place there? Among other things, the last judgment eradicates sin from its place in the cosmos. How? By shutting it up in the everlasting confinement of hell. New heavens and new earth will be sinless. There'll be no sin found at all in the presence, God's gracious presence among his elect people and so on. It'll all be shut up into the everlasting confinement of hell itself. In other words, judgment brings about, as we're hearing under the second point, the judgment of God brings about the deterring the restricting, if you will, the, the prevalency of sin is diminished through, through judgment. Well, that's true at the last day as well. So this is a cause to rejoice. If, if, with, if sin brings misery, and misery is sadness, then the absence or reduction of sin or prevalency of sin is the reduction of misery, which is the reduction of sadness, which should be the increase of rejoicing. So conceptually, this isn't that complicated. It's a cause for us to rejoice to see the judgments of God brought for this reason as well. Now, all that we've thought of up to this point have been things which in one way or another, one degree or another, benefit us. But there is yet more. Indeed, there is a more important reason for us to rejoice in the judgments of God. And that brings us to our third and last point. We rejoice in the judgments of God because judgment provides a glorious manifestation of God himself. Judgment provides a glorious manifestation of God himself. This is the most important reason why it is that the believer rejoices in the judgments of God. You know, to review what I so often review with you, we begin with who God is and we proceed to what God does. What he does reflects who he is. All, all of God is worthy of praise. All that he does is worthy of praise because all that he is is worthy of praise. All of it. All that God is is worthy of our rejoicing, of our praise and adoration, of our glorifying, of our, our extolling him. And so we rejoice in judgment because it provides a manifestation of God himself. Think of half dozen ways in which this is true. The judgments of God reveal his holiness, first of all. The judgments of God reveal his holiness. Now, we know that his holiness is his beauty. We worship him, as the Psalms teach us, in the beauty of his holiness. His holiness is, among other things, that, that, uh, that, that glorious display of, of his very being and all the intricacies of, 
of what that glory entails, right? Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, the angels uh, cry out. Well, God's holiness also includes his separation from creation and his absolute purity. So a separation from sin, his, his inherent and intricate purity. God cannot look upon sin. God cannot tolerate sin. And he's worthy to be praised for that. Because if he were anything less, if he were anything less than infinitely, exhaustively, unchangeably, eternally holy, if he were anything less than that, he would be unworthy of our worship. And so his holiness provokes within us a desire to rejoice in him. And his holiness is seen wherever his judgments are found. Secondly, his judgments manifest his justice. His judgments manifest his justice. God does what is right. He does what is right all of the time, on all occasions, in all places. He gives to everyone according to their work. He gives to everyone according to their work. There is never anything unfair. There is never anything unequitable. There is never anything that God does that anyone can say, that's not right. That's not fair. Because what God does reflects who God is, and God is just. And so he's perfectly right. When he brings, when he raises the sword of justice or causes the hammer of judgment to fall anywhere upon anyone in any circumstance, it's a display of his beauty, the perfection of his justice. The Lord does right. Thirdly, his judgments demonstrate his omnipresence. They demonstrate his omnipresence. God sees all. God is omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's, he's everywhere. There's nowhere that he's not. There's nothing that escapes him. Nothing that escapes his notice. You know, those who bury things in layers and layers and layers and layers and layers of very intricate, very complex hiding places, you know, with technology and security and so on and so forth, who think that they can insulate themselves, who think that they can keep everything under wraps, are fooling themselves. There's nothing that escapes God's notice. And he brings everything to judgment. We ought to rejoice in the demonstration of his omnipresence and of his omniscience. His judgments also exhibit his truth, right? He is verity. He is truth. And he exposes falsehood and he exposes deceit and he exposes delusion and he exposes everything else that is not perfectly true. That which masquerades in the fine clothing of polished rhetoric where men think that they can present what they insist is right 
in language that is persuasive to others, but is actually absolutely wrong. It's false, contradicts the word of God, contradicts the will of God, contradicts the way of God. No, the judgments of God demonstrate and exhibit his truth. His judgments also show forth his power. None is able to withstand him. Pharaoh, world power, couldn't do it. Nebuchadnezzar couldn't do it. You know, the kings of, of Assyria and Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome and all through the ages, none of them could do it. He overwhelms the most mighty so that those who feel and believe that they are invincible and undefeatable are blown like dust off the stage of history by the Lord's judgments. He overwhelms the most mighty. He's invincible in his power. And his judgments, his, his judgments demonstrate it. We see power in the judgments of God. Sixthly, the judgments of God reveal his love to his church. Because after all, every one of these judgments, all of these judgments, in one way or another, are for her benefit, for her defense, for her deliverance. He is working everything for the good of Salem. All the winds that blow and all the storms that blow are intended to blow Zion into her harbor. They're all there to benefit and bless God's people in one way or another. And so it reveals his love for his people. The judgments provide a glorious manifestation of God himself. And we must, we must rejoice in them because of that, right? Christ triumphs. Christ triumphs. But his triumphs are of two kinds are really viewed from two different angles. He triumphs in grace and he triumphs in judgment. And both are to be celebrated by the church. Both are to be celebrated by the church. What appears on the surface as a reason for terror, the judgment of God, is made a reason for joy. So that we are able to rejoice with trembling and to serve the Lord with fear, as Psalm 2 says. What you come to discover is that this whole business of judgment and of the, 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 the response of God's people to judgment lies very much at the core of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is actually training us in time He's training us in time for what we will look upon and rejoice over for eternity. The Psalms, which give us instruction about rejoicing in the judgments of God, are actually molding and shaping us and preparing us. We get to the last day and the last judgment, and the Bible says that we're rejoicing over the judgment of God over his enemies, over the beast and the Antichrist, over all of the unbelieving world and those that go to hell and so on and so forth. That's not going to be like something shockingly new. This isn't like a, 
uh, a new concept that appears out of the middle of nowhere. This is what the Lord's people will have done throughout all of history and throughout all of their individual lives, worshiping the Lord, adoring the Lord, magnifying the Lord because of his judgments. We get to the end and we're doing what we've always done. We're worshiping him for who he is and what he does. And the fact is that going out into eternity among the infinite number of reasons for joy in eternity for the Christian, one of those reasons, one of the reasons for joy will continue to be the existence of hell. Hell is eternal just like heaven. The judgment of God will be an ongoing reality and an ongoing cause for God's people to rejoice. Now, I'm a pastor as well as a person, and I understand the complexity that we face in emotionally wrapping our, our brains around that. I get that. I'm not dismissing that. I'm not belittling that. That's real. Like, that's something that is perplexing. I said at the beginning, this is perplexing to us. But we have to approach it through the lens of God's word. And it is we that have to conform to what God says, not vice versa. Not, the, not taking the truth and somehow conforming it to our sensibilities. But we are the ones that have to be molded and shaped after what God has revealed to us in his word. It begins in our minds, but it also works its way into our affections and our hearts. And, and heaven, of course, will be sinless and we'll have resurrected bodies, perfected souls, and capabilities that we don't have now in so many ways. But even here and now, the Lord's people can begin and must begin, indeed, to not only mentally assent to the truth that God is worthy to be worshipped because of his judgments, but to actually rejoice to have joy in our Christian experience, which includes mind, will, and emotions, affections, but for our affections to be stirred, to be made happy over the judgment of God. That's within reach. Indeed, it's, it's required of us. And I think the best way to get at that is to begin where we ended. And that is to say, I know that I see who God is in his judgments. And that all these things we've mentioned, his holiness, his justice, his omnipresence, his truth, his power, his love, and so on, those things do stir me to adore him, to rejoice over him. And that gives us good ground to exercise our souls, to, to exercise what might be weak spiritual muscles in the ways that God has called us to exercise them. Psalms help us. We're going to see it a lot. You, you have seen it a lot. As you're singing through these songs, the Lord is calling you. He's leading you. He's shaping you. He's molding you through these inspired songs. He's training you to learn to rejoice in him and to rejoice over him, even in his judgments. Zion heard and was glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoiced because of thy judgments, O Lord. Let's stand for prayer.
Almighty God in heaven, the God who is just and righteous altogether, the God who is holy, 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 <clears throat> who is truth and who does right, O Lord, teach us to bow before thy throne, to worship at thy footstool, to adore, magnify, and bless thy name always, to look upon the judgments of God in time and eternity, and to give thee the praise, to rejoice over them. O Lord, give, we pray, that our hearts would be shaped and molded by thy word and will and way. Give us, O Lord, to be conformed to the likeness of thine own glory and character. We are thankful that we are redeemed through judgment and how we rejoice in that redemption. O Lord, grant that glory would be gathered to thy name for all this and more, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>